0: guys, welcome to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm your host Jimbo. Uh, My co-host Terrence couldn't be here today, so hopefully with uh, our schedules being out of whack, next week uh, school starts for my kids and everything, and hopefully we'll be back on a normal scheduled program uh, where we can record actually at the same time, because I kind of miss my buddy. Um, So uh, I still wanted to get something out uh, this week, um, because for our next episode that I record with Terrence, we will be doing The Godfather. So it's going to be a pretty long one, probably two-parter, might even be three-parters, and I do have the interview with uh, Sam Farrell to throw in there, too. So I just want to say thanks again for listening, and thanks for sticking with us. Um, We we try to continually improve um, every week, so hopefully you guys can see some improvements from when we first began. Um, Also, just found out uh, late last night that we now have listeners in Italy, so uh, we're growing growing, uh, overseas as well, internationally. Um, I did get a uh, new review, uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read that. It says uh, the title was Great Outlook for the Future. Uh, This was by P. Ballman1. It was a five-star review. Hey, guys, Tim from Hillbilly Horror House. If you remember, uh, I played his uh, trailer for his season two uh, back a few episodes ago. Um, It says, hey, guys, Tim from Hillbilly Horror House. I am proud to see how far you two have come. I still listen to your podcast every week. The conversations between you two are great, and the research on the movies are top-notch. You ask for advice and actually take it. You two are going to go far in this. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks, Tim. That comes a lot. Uh, that means a lot coming from somebody like you, um, somebody that, uh, man, I know how hard you have to work from editing. Um, I kind of keep ours to editing as little as possible because I like the raw take. I want it just to be a couple of friends sitting around talking about movies, and that's what we try to do it as and keep it as. Okay. Uh, but thanks, thanks, bro. It means a lot. If you guys haven't listened to him, go ahead and head on over to Hillbilly Horror House and uh, give his uh, show a listen. Give him a review, too, on iTunes. Help him move up the charts. Um, it's an audio drama, so it'll keep you entertained. Uh, season 2 just wrapped up, and he's hard at work at Season 3 already. So um, for Episode 19, um, we're going to be doing, uh, for this episode, The Phantom of the Opera. Now, don't get excited and go all crazy, because this isn't the... Broadway version of the movie that was released um, earlier 2000s. Um, This isn't even the actually the second one that was like I think 1943 or whatever. This we're going way back to the silent movie and uh, for the Phantom of the Opera. And those of you that are too young, maybe not remember what a silent movie was. A silent movie is where they would show. the actors on the screen, and you would see their mouse moving, or the action, and then it would go to like a black screen with the words in white saying, "Hey, you get over here," or whatever, and then it would go back to uh, the the live action stuff, and maybe their mouse move again, then it would go back to the another one. Um, that's how a lot of the earlier movies were um, before uh, the technology and stuff came about where they could actually do the other stuff. So I wanted to get this out here because even though it is a silent movie. There's still a lot of good takeaways from this, and actually there's more notes on this movie than there was the last episode I did solo on Holiday Affair, so hang with me, this is going to be good, and um, it has one of the most famous uh, actors in it from uh, earlier times in this movie, so we're going to go ahead and kick this off. The Phantom of the Opera, the release date, November 15th, 1925, the gross USA uh, was $720,861, With inflation today, I looked up, it'd be a little over $10.5 million. The directors was Rupert Rupert Julian, uh, Lon Chaney, even though he was uncredited, uh, Ernest Lamy, who was also uncredited, and Edward Sedgwick, who was also uncredited. So right there, you see that there was four different directors that were working together on this. Um, even though Lon Chaney started the film, I'm sure he had a lot of uh, directorial direction on how he wanted the stuff to go, as you'll see later on in the notes. The writers, if you thought the directors were bad, there's even more writers. So this was uh, based on the 1910 novel by Gaston Leroux. And there are some French names in here, so if I mess up, please forgive me. Um, then uh, for the titles, that was uncredited, was Walter Anthony. An adaptation uh, that was uncredited was Elliot J. Clausen. The Treatment, which was uncredited, was Bernard McConville. Uh, Another uncredited uh, writer was Frank M. McCormick. Uh, Another titles uncredited was Tom Reed. Another adaptation uncredited was Raymond L. Schrock. An additional comedy material that was uncredited was Richard Wallace. And another Treatment that was uncredited was Jasper Spearing. So there you have, you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine different writers that worked on this film. So let's go and get into the technical aspects. The runtime of this movie is one hour, 33 minutes, so you're looking at about 93 minutes. The sound mix is mono uh, for the talking sequence, musical score, and sound effects in the 1929 re-release, um, but it was also the silent the first time around. Uh, the color was uh, obviously black and white with a color two-strip Technicolor in some sequences. The aspect ratio is 1.33 to 1. The film length, 2,579.85 meters or 10 reels in the USA. Negative format is 35 millimeters. The cinematographic I mean, I'll get that word right, one of these. Terrence, hurry up the back so you can get this. Uh, the cinematographic process is spherical. Uh, the printed film format is 35 millimeters. And now we're going to move on to the awards the uh, Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films USA in 2012. It was a nominee for the Saturn Award for the Best DVD and Blu-ray Special Edition Release. It was also um, a winner of the National Film Registry that was awarded by the National Film Preservation Board USA in 1998. So even, um, even people realize today um, what this film meant uh, to everybody, uh, how far it's come, and some of the stuff that was taken away from it. So the synopsis of this film is a mad, disfigured composer seeks love with a lovely young opera singer. So we're going to go ahead and jump into the cast. Um, Lon Chaney, uh, fantastic actor um, as The Phantom. Mary Philbin as Christine Daae. Norman Carey as Vicomte Raoul de Charnay. Arthur Edmund Carew as Ledoux. Gibson Goland as Simon Bouquet. John St. Polis as Comte Philippe de Chanet, Snitz Edwards, how would you like the name Snitz, as a Florin Papillion, Virginia Pearson as Carlotta, um, it was, she was also played Carlotta's mother in the 1930 reissue, and Mary F- uh, Fabian as Carlotta, and also in the 1930 reissue. Um, I didn't do a biography on this because um, here in October, We're hoping to do a Universal Monster theme month um, and also do another different movie, but we want to focus on the Universal Monsters, and we'll dive into a lot of uh, actors and characters, some of that you'll see um, later on, um, where they played multiple roles in the Universal Monster world. So stay tuned and be on the lookout for that. So we're going to go into the facts and trivia. There's about seven pages of notes, so um, it's not going to be real long, um, but there are some very interesting facts here. So, not a single photograph of Lon Chaney as the Phantom was published in a newspaper or magazine or seen anywhere before the film opened in theaters. Universal Pictures wanted the Phantom's face to be a complete surprise when his mask was ripped off. Man, I mean, today in social media, you can get that by just the touch of a button. um, Even before uh, the movie is even, just while it's being filming, even before it's released. So, that was pretty cool. According to the film's cameraman, Charles Van Inger, one of Lon Chaney's most trusted associates, Mary Philbin's reaction to the unmasking of the Phantom was real. She had no idea what he would look like until that exact moment. So that's, then again, that's really cool too. I mean, talk about shock factor and just to capture that emotion on film of the first time she's seen it. I think that's amazing. According to Charles Van Inger, the film's cameraman, he himself had a very strong reaction as Lon Chaney's unsuspecting guinea pig. Chaney had summoned Van uh, Inger to his dressing room, but without telling him why, when he got there and was standing about a foot behind the actor, Chaney suddenly spun around in full phantom makeup. I almost wet my pants. I fell back over a stool and landed flat on my back. Chaney laughed so hard, and Van Inger, who uh, then was very mad, yelled, ''Are you nuts?'' Unable to clearly talk with his fake teeth in, he spit them out. Never mind, Charlie. You already told me what I wanted to know. (laughs) So I guess it worked very well. Um, Lon Chaney devised his own makeup for this movie. Um, And that's something else. I mean, you don't really see a lot of actors today doing their own makeup. Um, They usually have to go into a a chair and sit there for hours and hours and uh, makeup and artists. And all of them come in and help get them ready. Gregory Peck's earliest movie memory is of being so scared by The Phantom of the Opera in 1925 at age 9 that his grandmother allowed him to sleep in the bed with her that same night. So Lon Chaney did his job there. The Phantom's distinctive bed was reused as Gloria Swanson's in Sunset Boulevard in 1950. Lon Chaney was claimed by a few sources to have taken over direction of several of the scenes he was in, allegedly including the famous unmasking scene. When Rupert Julian was first presented with the script, he simply said, Lon Chaney, or it can't be done. So that tells you how much Rupert Julian was really wanting to work with Lon Chaney. Inside Soundstage 28, part of the opera house still stands to the side where it was filmed some eight decades ago making it the oldest standing interior film set in the world. Though it remains impressive, time has taken its toll and is rarely, rarely used. Urban legends claim that the set remains because it, when workers have attempted to take it down in the past, there have been fatal accidents said to be caused by the ghost of Lon Chaney. So there you go, all you uh, ghost detectives, ghost hunters. That'd be cool to capture a Lon Chaney ghost on uh, recording our video. On October 31st, 2008, so Halloween in 2008, this film was screened at the Walt Disney Concert Hall with live musical accompaniment by the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra. Ads contained a tagline that was a clever twist on that for Alien from 1979. In silent films, no one can hear you scream. Lon Chaney did a lot of work with his performance through his hands. The son of two deaf mutes, he learned to be uh, very expressive with them and as this is a silent performance, the hands are required to convey quite a lot of information. Rupert Julian fought constantly with the cast and crew. Julian and Lon Chaney were not on speaking terms for most of the production and had to communicate through intermediaries. Norman Carey actually charged at Julian while riding a horse, knocking him to the ground in front of a group of onlookers. Lon Chaney's horrific self-applied makeup was kept secret right up until the film's premiere. A sound version of this film arrived in February in 1930, grossing another $1 million. It has since vanished and is considered lost. I'd like to try to find that. I think that would be very interesting to see how they went from a silent film to the audio version. So be on the lookout for that. If you guys know where you can get a copy, let me know. Lon Chaney put an egg membrane on his eyeballs to give them a cloudy look. That is just disgusting. But back then... That was pretty creative, and it worked. For the 1929 sound version, Universal purchased a pipe organ from the Robert Morton Organ Company in Van Nuys, California. It was installed on Stage 10, which was first used for filming and quickly converted for scoring music as well as doing fully sound effects work. The organ was used for scenes where Eric plays the organ in his basement lair. It was used in several Universal feature film scores, including... Bride of Frankenstein in 1935, and Ghost Story in 1981, as well as episodes of various TV series produced by the studio. It was sold sometime in the late 1990s. Soundstage 28, The Phantom Stage, has been used in countless other films and television series, including The Phantom of the Opera from 1943, Dracula in 1931, The Raven in 1935, The Sixth Sense, uh, the 1972 version, and Torn Curtain, 1966. Sadly, the soundstage was demolished in 2014 after several parts of the Opera House set were saved from demolition. The failure of the original copyright holder to renew the film's copyright resulted in it falling into public domain, meaning that virtually anyone could duplicate and sell a VHS DVD copy of this film. Therefore, many versions of this film uh, are available on the market are either severely and usually... um, Uh, Let's see here. Badly edited and are extremely poor quality, having been duped from second or third generations or more copies of the film. A new transfer of the film was struck in the 1950s. Even at this stage, the original nitrate camera, negative, was starting to disintegrate. Most of the current prints seen today are based on that 1950s duplicate, negative. The Phantom's makeup was designed to resemble a skull. Lon Chaney attached a strip of fish skin, a thin, transsucculent material, to his nostrils with spirit gum. Pulled it back until he got the tilt he wanted, then attached the other end of the fish skin under his bald cap. For some shots, a wire and rubber device was used, and according to cameraman Charles Van Inger, a cut into Chaney's nose and caused a good deal of bleeding. Cheeks were built up uh, using a combination of cotton and collodion, Ears were glued back and the rest was grease paint shaded in the proper areas of the face. The sight was said to have caused some patrons at the premiere to faint. So there you can see how much of a... He went through so much just to get his paint right and uh, his makeup right. Um, so it, it must have worked if he had people fainting at the premiere. A Jewel Production, unlike most of its peers, a Universal never owned a theater chain, ultimately a wise decision given the 1949 Supreme Court antitrust decision that would threaten the livelihood of many of its competitors. As a result, in 1916, Carl LeMay devised a three-tiered branding system to market its features to independent theater owners, Red Feather low budget programmers, Bluebird mainstream releases, and Jewel costly prestige productions. The studio would abandon branding altogether by the end of 1929. Um, as we said uh, earlier, or as I said earlier, selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry in 1998 as being culturally, historically, or anesthetically ins- or significant. The film's European three-tiered box-seat horseshoe theater and stage proscenium still exist at Universal Studios as a standing set. It was used by one of our favorites, Alfred Hitchcock, in Torn Curtain in 1966, among other films. By 1965, the interior had fallen into disrepair, but Universal let Hitchcock use it in in the climax for the film. Hitchcock had his crew, including Joseph Musso, then an illustrator and later an art director, restore the theater set back to the way it was in the original Phantom film. Although the original blueprints could not be found, Musso had an 8x10 photo collection from the Chaney uh, film that showed the set in great detail. Production manager Hein Heckroth, art director Frank Arago, and assistant art director Joe Alves had set designers create new blueprints based on the photos. The original seats were reupholstered and put back into the audience section. When the sequence was finally filmed with Paul Newman, Julie Andrews, and 500 extras, the set looked like it did in the Chaney film. So that's pretty cool. They recreated the set off some old uh, 8x10 photos that they had of the original set. Several sequences were shot in various color process for the general release prints. Technicolor was used for the scenes from Faust and the ball mask scene. Prismacolor sequences were shot for the Soldier's Night introduction and Hanschegel, a process that uses stamps to hand color prints for the Phantom's notes and red cape on the rooftop. Only the Technicolor ball mass sequence is known to survive, an IB, uh, IB print from the 1929 re-release. Despite its production troubles and reshoots, the movie was a great box office success, pulling in over $2 million, adjusted for inflation, approximately $27.8 million. The only stage in the history of Hollywood where a turntable was built specifically for the 1925 Phantom of the Opera feature film, and has remained intact for 90 years. A stage theatrics uses of a turntable in set design was primarily a European novelty incorporated into an elaborate opera. That is, um, let me see here: uh, opera production in England, Italy, and Germany. A turntable built into the set design was first introduced on Broadway in 1941 for the Kurt Weill musical *Lady in the Dark*, designed by stage designer Harry Horner. The novelty of this motorized turntable was unique, a center donut ring with an outer six-foot ring. The entire entire donut turntable could move into either direction, or the center turntable could move independent um, of the stationary outer ring, and the outer ring could move in the opposite direction of the center ring. The same turntable concept was copied in the set design for the 1969 Broadway musical Coco designed by Cecil Beaton. The Oliver Smith set design for the 1956 to 1962 Broadway musical My Fair Lady, um, if you haven't seen that, that's a good one too, utilized two turntables alignment on center stage rotating in opposite directions of each other to transform the uh, scenic set element. During the 50s, 60s, and 70s, NBC Burbank Stock Scenery Division built a motorized turntable which expanded from a 10-foot diameter to a 30-foot diameter turntable. This scenic element was used on several NBC color television variety series, such as The Dinah Shore Show, The Bob Hope Show, The Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis Show, and etc. The Stage 28 Phantom of the Opera turntable is unique in the history of both Hollywood films, live color television series and specials, and Broadway stage productions. So, that was just a little history on the turntable. Universal uh, Stage 28 was demolished in September 2014, although certain parts of the Opera House set were saved from destruction. The print restored by Kino is a 1929 re released version that was re edited, eliminating some scenes and inserting new material shot after the 1925 version was finished. These included a sound sequence with opera star Mary Fabian singing in the role of Carlotta, and the re edited version. Virginia Pearson, who played Carlotta in the silent 1925 version, is credited and referred to as Carletta's mother instead. When restoring this film, the sound version created in 1929 was going to be part of the uh, restored version of the movie. However, the quality of the audio was so poor, although the restored version was used, it was kept silent. It was never ...satisfactory explained in the script how Eric the Phantom came to be disfigured in the first place. The most likely answer is that the Phantom was born a freak of nature. And you'll see that a lot of times um, in different movies. Um, Some say he was a freak of nature. Some say he got burned in a fire. Um, There's a lot of different ones. So it never said in this one which way it was. So this is also included, as usually, uh, in the 1001 movies you must see before you die edited by Steven Schneider, and you know, I always wondered why it went to 1001 movies. I'm sure there's a movie in there that they could have taken out and just made it an even thousand. So, there you go, there's another movie from the 1001 movies you must see before you die. The only part of this set still standing is the Opera House, though the part, the only parts left completely untouched are the boxes and stage sides. A full working organ was installed at the Astor Theater in New York City for the film's premiere. The original ending had the Phantom dying from a broken heart and being found dead at his organ. Edward Sedgwick directed a few scenes after director Rupert Julian walked off the set after heated arguments with the cast and crew. According to a 1924 magazine article, at no time during the production is his picture and the makeup of the weird creature he is playing to be made public. In every scene photographed for publicity or lobby display in which Lon Chaney appears, the face will be blanked out by a patch. At no time will any screen actor other than the one playing in the picture will be allowed on the set to see his makeup, and the actors in the production are pledged to secrecy. No one will see him apply the makeup, for Chaney applies his own makeup at home and comes to the studio wearing a mask, a molded flesh-colored affair that is within the... um, Laws of the public streets, but still conceals his strange disguise from the onlooker. Cheney has has experimented for months on the makeup and does not want the public to see it except in the actual production when completed and released. It is not fair to have me experiment, work up a makeup that is really something of an achievement, then spoil the public's appreciation of it by broadcasting pictures of it, so that by the time the picture is released, there is no surprise to it. So I wonder if this is where Alfred Hitchcock got a lot of his. Um, if you remember our Psycho episode, he was he did not want anybody coming in uh, late to the C Psycho. He didn't want anybody. You know, he didn't even have show him the script, uh, had it finished so they could see what was happening in the movie to keep the secrecy. So I wonder if he got a little bit of inspiration from Lon Chaney from this movie. It has been alleged that Mary Philbin refused to work with Lon Chaney again after he had made advances upon her during the filming of Phantom of the Opera. That's a no-no, Lon. The Universal Studios Stage 28 uh, floor footprint built for the 1925 B&W Lon Chaney Phantom of the Opera feature film is enormous. The European Horseshoe Paris Opera Theater's three-tiered box audience seating uh, area surrounds the floor audience ramped area. The master wide shot from the top rear box seat area encompasses the stage proscenium, orchestra pit, and the chandelier. The top of the interior theater ceiling master shot is completed with a matte painting. The audience area is one-third of the stage's footprint. The north end of the stage of Stage 28 encompasses the raised staged area. What really makes this stage unique is that in 1925, an elaborate 30-foot diameter mechanical turntable sits in the center of the front stage area, allowing 40 feet from the back edge of the turntable to the rear stage back wall. The basement of Stage 28 houses the original turntable mechanical mechanism to turn the 30-foot diameter turntable. All of the mechanics for the turntable have remained intact, sitting in their original structural positions. The turntable centers on a center cylindrical shaft uh, with triangular inverted bracing branches welded to the center shaft, similar to an inverted umbrella brace. The entire weight of the turntable is thrust upon the center turning spindle. After the original film was completed, the turntable area of the stage floor was covered with three layers of three-fourths thick plywood, four-foot by ten-foot sheets, which allowed future film sets to be built upon the turntable stage area uh, for future filming. When a camera crane is used on the stage, allowances have to be considered with the turntable's floor positions related to the film's set requirements. The original stage had a theater pin rail system with a hanging pipe arborist for electrical lights existing on the stage right area. The raised stage area was utilized for the feature film process photography because of the depth required for a film's projector onto a rear screen, enough room for a cameraman and crew uh, with an acting and performance area in front of the screen. The projector camera has to be in the direct center of the film's camera lens's point of view position uh, with a depth of field allowance. The 1943 Universal Studios Technicolor remake of The Phantom of the Opera starring Nelson Eddy, Susanna Foster, and Claude Rains stripped the plywood floor covering in order to utilize the turntable for the film stage production members, or numbers. The turntable mechanism was turn, uh, tuned up and used in the film. After the 1943 Technicolor film was completed, the stage flooring was, reinst- uh, was installed, recovering the turntable. The turntable has never been used since the 1943 feature film The Interior Opera House Theater has been filmed, and the production stage area of uh, Stage 20 has been host to many feature uh, films and television films. So there's a little bit of history about the turntable and uh, some of the movies that it was used in. Zan, one of the leading Hollywood wig makers, made Lon Chaney's wigs for this film. Chaney would often buy wigs from him for his films. Ben Carey was called in to design the sets, and although he had worked at the Paris Opera House, He had already been living in California for some time doing sets for other films. The film is included in Roger Ebert's greatest movies list. Well, that's a shock because Roger Ebert usually didn't like good movies. Um, Including among the American Film Institute's 1998 list of the 400 movies nominated for the top 100 greatest American movies. This is the favorite film of director Gordon Parks. The film was re-released in sound in 1929 using Vitaphone and Western Electric Sound Disc. Approximately 40% of the film was reshot in or synchronous sound, and the rest had a music soundtrack added or was dubbed over. The Kino edition is a silent version of the 1929 cut, as are with a few exceptions, most others, which was a kind of common practice at the time for the theaters that did not have sound systems installed. For the sound edition of Lon Chaney was not available and contractually Universal was not allowed to have a vocal synchronization of the Phantom. However, the studio had third-person lines written and dubbed over shots of the Phantom's shadow. The actor who spoke these lines is uncredited, but is probably Universal uh, regular Phillips Smalley. Frank Eames was cast as the Persian, but ironically enough, his character was changed to an Inspector of the surret when the title cards were being edited in post-production. Ironically, because Frank Ames was the stage name of a Hungarian-born actor. The film was quite popular when released, and a merchandise tie-in was quickly launched called Phantom Cosmetics. These inexpensive makeup products, which were endorsed by leading lady Mary Philbin, and featured an an illustrated image of the Phantom, which had been used in adverts for the movie. This is believed to be the first example of mass merchandising for a horror film, which is really amazing. Uh, Back in 19... Man, 1925. Filmed on Stage 28 at Universal Studios in Hollywood. Uh, There are surviving photos showing scenes that were shot but edited from the final version. Amongst them are the following. The Phantom being present at the graveyard where Christine's father is buried. At the time she is paying her respects to him. Also an alternate ending where Eric is found dead at his organ caused by a broken heart. The film went through numerous reshoots before finally going out on a release. After the first version was completed, it was deemed too horrific after view, being viewed by a preview, previous audience. About 60% of the footage was junked. Man, they hated it so much that 60% of it was junked and they had to reshoot it. During the climatic chase through the streets of Paris, the, uh, the, from the cathedral from The Hunchback of Notre Dame can clearly be seen. And if I do believe, if I have my notes right, I do believe Lon Chaney played the Hunchback of Notre Dame, too. So, um, from 1923, that's another outstanding performance. Another great movie. Raoul uh, reads Christine's card message with his right hand. The close up, however, shows the card being held in his left hand. When Christine first interprets the role of Margaret in Foss, we see her in the costume used for the ending of Act 5 of Foss, the finale of the opera. However, when Raul comes around to her dressing room after the opera had finished, we find Christine in a braided wig, an outfit worn during the Jewel Song, which is in Act 3 of the opera. In the 1929 cut the, uh, cut, the flickering of the lights just before the chandelier falls are on faders uh, during the reshot footage. During the cross cutting with the 1925 footage, however, they are on breakers. Um, Also, if you pay close attention to Daring Eric, which was the name of the uh, phantom, uh, his sleeves during his unmasking, they change lengths. And also, the mask that he was wearing uh, disappears during the unmasking as well. When Raul and Ledoux are approaching the phantom's lair, Ledoux makes a drop through a trapdoor about 10 to 12 feet down, clearly out of arm's length to the opening above. However, Raul, in the next shot above, merely hands down his lantern as if Ledoux is merely a couple of feet away. When the dude directs Christine and Rollo away from the phantom, he lowers his hand and points down twice. When the phantom tells Christine, you shall bring me love, he raises his hands above his head and then cuts to a different angle and his hands are below shoulder height. In another 1929 cut, a shadow can be seen passing in front of the back lighting of the door to Christine's room in the phantom's lair just as the unmasking scene ends. The opening credits are accurate uh, to the 1929 re-edited version listing Mary Fabian Carlotta and Virginia Pearson Escarlada's mother. However, the ending credits still credit Pearson Escalada. This is due to the fact that the 1929 cut is actually made of two negatives, one from a 1929 silent version and the one from the original 1925 version. It's most likely that the credited sequence is from the latter. When the front page of the newspaper Les Matin is shown, its highly, uh, higher part is written in French while its bottom part is written in English. Although main titles make sense in both languages, it appears that lines hardly, uh, hardly form a consistent text and are closer to gibberish. Uh, in the 1929 cut, when the phantom's alarm goes off, the sound of the chimes does not always match the strikes of the device's arms. That is because what you are hearing in this film soundtrack, not sound effects which do not exist in a silent film. As such, this being off-sync is allowable. When the crowd grabs Eric alongside the sign, scene, sign, they are in such a rage that some people accidentally fall into the river. But if you watch, you can see them deliberately run and jump into the water rather than being pushed or jolted. Another one runs down the stairs and is about to jump just as the scene ends. Hilarious. man! <laughs> I mean, they're just running and jumping in. Part of the unmasking scene were clearly filmed on the days when Lon Chaney didn't wear his character's makeup. When he has the mask on, his ears are not glued back, which suggests that his face was all naturel underneath the mask. And lastly, during the coach chase scene, Chaney did not apply the Phantom School uh, face makeup to his nose. So that's just a little bit of the Phantom of the Opera, the 1925 version. Hope you enjoyed it um we do plan on doing the phantom of the opera the musical from the broadway hit uh, because i've seen it live three times and it's one of my daughter's favorite movies so um she might even sit in and do it with us so um i didn't do a biography and i didn't do a question for this so uh the next time we record we will be doing the godfather um i'm going to try something new with it when we do it um some different audio and stuff see how it goes Mm -hmm. um like I said, I hope you like this. I just wanted to make sure I got something out there. And if you haven't seen this film, it's it's fantastic. When he does his unmasking scene, I'll probably find a picture of it and I'll put it on Facebook, uh, the Facebook uh, group. Uh, and if you'd like to join that, that's the Tragedy of Cinema podcast group on Facebook. Um, I'll post it on there so you guys can see it. Um, also, um, if you'd like to send us any questions or emails, um, you can send them to the tragedy of Cinema, all one word, at gmail.com. Um, if you'd like to leave us a review like uh, Mr. Mullins did earlier uh, that I read at the beginning on iTunes, I will read it on the air. Um, it helps us move up in the charts on iTunes. That's how they, a lot of people see that. That's how we get sponsors and all that. So uh, be on the lookout. Um, if, you have, if you're if you on the Facebook page and you happen to see my test Facebook uh, live run, I was on there for about, I don't know, seven minutes. A couple of people hopped in and we talked a little bit. I wanted to check out the audio quality and the video quality. So they all sound, said it sounded to look good. Um, so be on the lookout for our live Facebook um, episode coming. Um, it's going to be where we give away prizes, trivia. Um, so if you had, like I said in the live Facebook uh, test earlier, if you haven't listened to all the episodes, you might want to uh, listen to all the episodes, pay close attention to the questions I asked Terrence. If we've ever said this is our favorite movie, our favorite actor, favorite actress, um, maybe some different stuff within the movies that um, will be trivia that's not easily Google Googleable. Um, so I don't even know if that's a word, but I just made it up. So Google Googleable. Um, so um, and there might be even a prize given away for once everybody uh, comes in while we're doing it. Uh, we'll give you a, a number as you come in, like one, two, three, or whatever. And then we'll do an, a random number generator like we did back in episode two for. The Alfred Hitchcock bobblehead. I don't know what that prize is going to be, yet, so we're, we'll we'll think of something. Uh, so once again, thanks for your support. Um, you guys mean a lot to us. Uh, we couldn't do it without you guys. So uh, we just want to say that thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And hopefully, starting next week, uh, me and Terrence can get back on the same schedule, and we can start pumping out these uh, episodes. Um, if you if you have a movie you would like to, us to cover, um, I know somebody else just said something today. So. Um, if you have a movie you'd like for us to cover, hit me up. You, some of you know me on Facebook. Uh, drop it in the Facebook uh, group, or you can email me at thetragedyofcinema at g, uh, gmail.com, and I'll look at it. And then uh, even if you'd like to be on here, I know how to interview people now, so um, I'll be able to record you. We do have, like, uh, with Godfather, Sam's coming on. And then when we do Star Trek First Contact, all the way over from Australia, a lady came on named Patricia. Uh, so be on the lookout for that uh, I'd like to say hi to all our listeners over there I know they they're at work uh, Patricia's off uh, getting ready to have a baby so I know uh, varshini and Julian and um, all the uh, Jessica and all the others over there hey Wendy I want to make sure I said a special hello to you because you're taking over for Patricia so hope you're having a good day um, but uh, We enjoy that. I like interacting with people, but that way um, we can talk about your movie that you wanted us to talk about, and we'll throw it in the episode. So be on the lookout for The Godfather coming up this next week. Be on the lookout for our announcement of our live Facebook, because it will be a Saturday at 10 o'clock. I just don't know which one yet. I have to get with Terrence. And then we'll announce that on the Facebook page so everybody can be ready for it. And if you haven't listened to any of the episodes, you might want to listen to them because you never know what questions will be asked. So with that being said, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut.